Um, welcome everyone. Uh, this is, uh, uh, we, we welcome you Adrisha and this is the third class in this series on Shemitah in the Mishnah, uh, Challenges and Opportunities with Rabbi um, Abraham Wolfish. Uh, today's class will discuss the subject of boundaries of the land and use of Shemitah produce. Uh, we encourage everyone to turn on uh, their video if you're able to. Uh, also during the class, you can feel free to ask questions uh, either verbally by unmuting yourself, um, or you can write them at the uh, chat box here on Zoom. If you're watching us live on uh, Facebook, you can also uh, type them as a comment on Facebook. We would love to hear from you as well, even if you're not present with us on Zoom. Uh, yeah, and now I'll turn it to uh, Rabbi Wolfish. Okay, good evening. Nice to see uh, everyone again. Um, so let's first of all locate ourselves within uh, Masechet Shvi'it. We've uh, done half of the Masechet, the first five chapters. Uh, tonight we have a tall order. We're going to look at four chapters, uh, six through nine. And Bezat uh, Hashem, the next class we will look at the last chapter, chapter 10. So, um, the first five chapters we divided into two, two parts. Uh, the first two chapters uh, deal with building up to Shemitah, preparing for the year of sanctity, preparing the land for its year of rest. Um, then the third through fifth chapters um, all dealt with uh, the uh, practices during Shemitah. And as we saw, the, the uh, emphasis in these chapters, uh, chapter three is a kind of swing chapter. It opens with the theme of time, with the word me'ematai, which echoes adematai, that's a key phrase in chapters one and two. Um, uh, and it, uh, it, it, it uh, in various places in the chapter, they talk about the timing of uh, different different practices. But chapter three also <clears throat> lays the groundwork for chapters four and five, in the sense that A, it's dealing with the Shemitah year itself, and it introduces uh, several themes that we thought were, uh, saw were very central uh, in chapters four and five as well. Uh, all of these chapters deal with uh, what may and may be not uh, may not be done uh, in the land during the uh, uh, during the Shemitah year, and uh, a lot of the things that are discussed uh, that are being discussed are things that, in and of themselves, are not problematic, but might appear to be a problem. So we we saw several key terms uh, last time, uh, uh, the term marit ha'ayin, which is an unusual term in the Mishnah, and particularly in the way in which it's used in Masech HaTshvi'it. And in particular, we saw, especially in chapters four and five, a lot of terms that focus our attention on the society, how the society um, organizes itself to observe Shemitah. And that involves both acting in such a way as not to cast suspicion on yourself, but it also involves how one interacts with other people, both how legitimately one should interact with other people. Can I do things in someone else's field? 
And perhaps the things I can do in someone else's field, I can't do in my own field, because when I do it in my own field, it might appear to be a problematic, uh, prohibited form of behavior. Whereas if I do it in somebody else's field, it's clear that I'm doing it with the correct intention. It also involves um, uh, when I do enter someone else's field in order to benefit from their produce. Um, so um, is that person uh, entitled to expect some kind of uh, uh, appreciation on my part? Am I entitled to express appreciation? There's the makloket between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. So these have to do with permissible kinds of interactions. And then there are also the more challenging kinds of interactions that are dealt with quite extensively in chapters four and five, and especially towards the end of chapter five. And that has to do with uh, transacting in various ways with people uh, whose observance of Shemitah is suspect. Uh, and that includes, for example, can I uh, give or sell uh, different, different kinds of, uh, of implements uh, to someone during a Shemitah year when, uh, when it, I know that this person is not a Shemitah observer. So if I sell him these products, it's very likely that he will use them for impermissible activities. And yet the Mishnah goes out of its way to, uh, to insist that until it is 100% clear that the person will definitely be using it for, for prohibited activity, then, uh, uh, then I should interact, okay? In other words, uh, there, there's, you know, there, there are two conflicting values here. The one value that the Mishnah calls Darchei Shalom is that we want to maintain the unity of the society, keep the society as one social fabric. But on the other hand, we also want to, uh, want to maintain our fidelity to the mitzvot of the Torah and to the mitzvot of Shemitah in, in particular. So the Mishnah talks about how to balance those two conflicting uh, uh, goals. And uh, takes us pretty far in the direction of bending the rules of Shemitah in order to uh, uh, maintain proper relationships within the society, but does in the end, uh, uh, does in the end set limits uh, upon that. Okay, so those were some of the highlights of what we saw in the first five chapters. <clears throat> and Again, what unites all these five chapters is they're all dealing with how to work the land. First two chapters, how to prepare the land before we enter Shemitah, how to work the land before we actually enter into the Shemitah year. And uh, in chapters three through five, what, what I actually do and do not do on the land uh, during the year of Shemitah. And now chapter six, okay, let's share screen here. Um, okay, chapter six uh, opens with Shalosh Haratzot Lishmit. 
So again, we seem to be talking about land. And interestingly, um, this is the first place we see in the Mishnah that Shemitah is confined to the land of Israel. Okay, uh, it's something that we would think is pretty obvious in, when, when we read the passages in the Torah and, and uh, we read Sukim like, uh, the pasuk like that makes it very clear that we're talking about uh, Eretz Israel. The opening of the passage of Shemitah in Vayikra chapter 25. This is the land God has given you. And then the message is, he gave it to us, but it's not an outright gift. He retains control over it. And Shemitah is one of the most dramatic expressions of how the land in some very profound sense doesn't really belong to us. Okay, uh, but in the Mishnah, the first mention of uh, Shemitah being confined to Eretz Israel is here at the beginning of chapter six. And chapter six opens with three regions regarding Shvi'it, okay, and Kol Shech Zikolei Bavel, Kol Shech Zikolei Mitzrayim, and Mehanahar Umeamana Vilifnim. Okay, so uh, the three regions are uh, the part of the land that was occupied by those who came up from Babylonia, part that was occupied by the ones who came up from Egypt, and from the river and Amana and further, okay, which seems to be going into Syria, Lebanon, that area, okay, even though Syria is mentioned separately in the Mishnah, okay, what, what, what the Mishnah calls Syria is not all of what we would today call Syria, okay, but there is some, some, some region okay, that, that goes beyond, okay, the, the part that was occupied by those who came up from Egypt. Okay, so now just before we go further in, in, look, in getting our overview of these four chapters that we're looking at this evening, okay, uh, just a couple of words so we'll understand the terms here, okay. Am Yisrael occupied the land of Israel twice. Okay, we, Baruch Hashem, are now living through the third, the third commonwealth. The first two commonwealths were the Olei Mitzrayim, okay, the Jews coming up from Egypt. 40 years afterwards, after they'd wandered through the wilderness, they conquered the land, settled the land, divided it among, among the tribes, and that lasts through pretty much all of the biblical period. Okay, it runs through the book of Malachim, the book of Divrei Ayamim that outlines the, uh, the history up to and including <clears throat> the destruction of the people, and, uh, the destruction of the temple and the exile of Judea, okay, which is some 140 years approximately after the exile of the 10 northern tribes. Okay, so the people were exiled. That was the end of the of the first commonwealth. That's the period called Olay Mitzrayim. 
So the boundaries of Olei Mitzrayim mean the historical boundaries of Eretz Yisrael. And we should remember that during the biblical period, okay, we had kings such as uh, David and Shlomo who expanded the boundaries of Eretz Yisrael. So that means that they conquered okay, uh, a, a, a relatively large amount of territory that is part and parcel of Eretz Yisrael. They also conquered, David in particular conquered, okay, the area that we call Syria, okay, Aram Tsova and Aram Naharaim are, are the two parts of Syria that, that David uh, conquered that has, a, that has a separate status and that's not included in this Mishnah. It's included in the Mishnah following this one that we're not going to have opportunity to look at uh, uh, this evening. Okay, but that has a separate status. But so here we're talking about historical Eretz Israel. But since the Mishnah okay, is compiled okay, during the Second Commonwealth, after the destruction of the Second Temple, but when there's still a very significant Jewish presence in the land, okay, the Jews have some kind of semi-autonomy during the time of the Mishnah. They're ruled by the patriarch, okay, Rabbi Yudah, uh, who compiles the Mishnah, is Rabbi Yudah Hanasi, he's the patriarch, who is not only a religious leader, but he's also a political uh, leader, political and national leader uh, of Am Yisrael. So this is still part and parcel of the Second Commonwealth. And the Second Commonwealth had uh, had had uh, smaller boundaries to Eretz Israel than did Olay Mitzrayim. They didn't get as far north, as far south. Okay, they didn't settle uh, Transjordan. Okay, as as the you know as, as Olay Mitzrayim had done in Transjordan again as a separate standing in several places in 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 the halacha. Okay, so these are the three levels of Eretz Yisrael as far as, uh, as, as, far as Shemitah uh, is concerned. Okay, so let, let, let's just look and see what this Mishnah says about the three. That's the real Eretz Yisrael at the time of the Mishnah, because that's what was settled, starting with Ezra, Nehemiah, Shivat Zion, okay, what they, uh, the areas that they settled, the areas that were settled in subsequent generations, and those areas, which were areas of Jewish settlement during the Second Temple period, the Second Commonwealth, okay, that has full-fledged sanctity of Eretz Israel, and therefore the halacha is lo ne'echal velo ne'evat, okay, the the fruit is not eaten, the produce is not eaten, and the land is not worked. Okay, now what exactly that means, we'll, we'll come back and look at a bit further on. Okay, but, but, uh, 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 but for our purposes now, okay, we'll just take these terms at face value. Then we have a broader area called Shekhziko Mitzrayim, but we're not settled during the Second Commonwealth. So that is historical Eretz Israel, but it is not settled at the time of the Mishnah and, and wasn't settled during the Second Temple period. 
And so that has lesser sanctity, okay? Perhaps rabbinic sanctity, perhaps not, not uh, sanctity from the Torah, okay? But be that as it may, lesser sanctity. And therefore, ne'echal, the produce may be consumed, but the land may not be worked. So that's a lower grade status. Now, so these are bordering regions that were not settled during the first commonwealth, nor during the second commonwealth. And so those are even though these are areas that adjoin Eretz Israel, and areas that adjoin Eretz Israel do have some kind of status vis-a-vis some of the other agricultural mitzvot, let's say Shumotu Masrot, for example, okay, were taken from some of these areas, okay. Um, um, so, uh, uh, nevertheless, as far as Shemitah is concerned, they have no standing whatsoever. Okay, that's the opening Mishnah of chapter six. And that Mishnah sets the tone for, uh, for the rest of the chapter. Okay, a good part of the rest of the chapter also talks about the boundaries, okay, and the different laws that apply to different uh, regions that have a greater or lesser degree of sanctity. Let's move on to get a brief introduction to chapter seven. Chapter seven opens with the term Claudado, which is interesting. Okay, a great rule. Okay, an important rule is the translation that I copied uh, here, but it's actually a, a large, significant rule. Okay, uh, okay uh, a great rule was said about uh, uh, Shvi'it. Okay, and then Od Klalechad, there's another Klal, okay, anyone who needs can follow in the translation on, on, on the left. Kol Shul Adam, Machal Umitkayem Baret. So you have two, two levels. One of them is where the species, okay, is perennial. It, it doesn't disappear, okay, from the land. Uh, uh, it doesn't like... Uh, disappear every season and then uh, uh, sort of uh, reappear or replant itself the following season, okay? So those have all of the laws that are listed here, the laws of Shvi'it, okay? That and its purchase money also have the laws of Shvi'it, yeshlo bi'ur, ulidamav bi'ur, okay? And, and uh, also the laws of bi'ur. Okay, we'll explain what these different laws are uh, in a bit. Okay, then we have uh, those things that have the same qualities except for mitkayem ba'aretz. It does last in the land. It is perennial. So then it has the laws of shvi'it, but not the laws of bi'ur. Okay, now, without getting into detail as to what all these laws are, shvi'it, bi'ur, and so on, Okay, but let's just note one thing that's very clear here, and that is the chapter seven is now talking about the produce. What does one do with the produce? That's why it opens with kol shehu ma'achal, anything that is 
food for a man, food for an animal, or a species of dying, which for purposes of Shemitah have a status similar to food. Okay, so then they have the following laws that govern them. And a bit further on, we'll talk about what these laws are. But let's move on to chapter eight. Chapter eight, very interestingly, also opens with Klal Gadol. Klal Gadol Okay, another very important principle about Shvi'it. And the principle, it, it opens with language that's very reminiscent, the language that opens chapter seven. Anything that is designated as human food. Now, chapter seven talked about either human food or animal food, or even something that could be used as a dye. But here, anything that is designated specifically for human food, you cannot make it a plaster. Okay? A plaster be a sort of like what we would call a band-aid or a bandage. Can't use it as a bandage uh, for a person and certainly not for an animal, okay? Which is another way of saying you're restricted in what you're allowed to do with it. Food items normally, okay, even though there are halachot about how food items should be treated with respect, you shouldn't use them in a, in a, in a way that doesn't show them proper respect. But uh, there's great latitude in terms of what you can do with them. If uh, you have a wound that is best bandaged by making use of produce, so you can use that produce in order to, uh, uh, in order to make a bandage, okay? Or for various other kinds of purposes, but not with Shemitah produce. So chapter eight, like chapter seven, is talking about what may be done with the produce, okay? The relationship between these chapters, we'll look at a little more closely a bit, a bit further on, okay? And let's just get a brief look at chapter nine. Now, interestingly, chapter nine, we're not gonna look at the first Mishnah, but the second Mishnah, because the second Mishnah in chapter nine, opens with shalosh aratzot biyur, which is very reminiscent of shalosh aratzot bishvi'it that opens chapter six. And what you can see here is that there is a chiastic structure. We'll talk about that in a bit. But first let's get a, a zero in a little more on the opening of chapter nine. Shalosh aratzot biyur. Okay, there are three regions for Bi'ur. In chapter three, uh, chapter six rather, we had three regions for Shvi'it. Now we have three regions for Bi'ur. Bi'ur appeared in chapter seven, right? Yeshlo Shvi'it and Yeshlo Bi'ur. Okay, so chapter nine talks, talks about Bi'ur and says Bi'ur is divided into three regions. Yehuda ve'ever hayarden ve'galil. Now these three regions are not, as in chapter six, okay, regions that delineate the boundaries of Eretz Israel, but boundaries within Eretz Israel. Judea, Transjordan, and the Galilee. Yehuda ve'ever hayarden ve'galil. 
These are three regions within Eretz Yisrael that are applicable to Biur. Okay, and uh, what, what, what that means, we'll, we'll come back and see in a bit. But I just want to dwell for now a little bit on the chiastic structure of these four chapters, okay? And uh, I've picked representative Mishnayot. And these are opening Mishnayot, and each open, uh, opening Mishnah reflects a major part of the content of the chapter which it opens, okay? And again, in chapter nine, the opening Mishnah is Mishnah two. If we have time, we'll, we'll look later on at Mishnah one and, and see what it is and, and, and why it's there, okay? But these opening Mishnayot tell us a story, okay? On the, at the beginning and end of the chiasm, okay, we have Shalosh Aratzot, three regions delineating the boundaries of Eretz Israel as opposed to outside of Eretz Israel, and three regions in the land delineating regions within the land that are uh, important for determining the laws of Bi'ur. Okay, and in the center we have two Mishnah, <coughs> excuse me, two, two, two chapters devoted to Klaul Gadol. They both open with this very unusual phrase, okay, Klaul Gadol, other than appearing in these two places, okay, appears in one other place. In the Mishnah, we'll take a look at that later on, okay, uh, very interesting parallel as, as uh, Bezrat Hashem will say, okay, and, and uh, chapter, uh, okay, the Klaul Gadol in both chapters seven and eight has to do with how one treats food, okay? Shmita produce, uh, when used as food, how, what am I allowed to do with it? Okay, what, what things am I allowed to do with the Shemitah produce? What are the limitations on my use of these food items during the Shemitah year? That's what chapters seven and eight have, have to do with. Okay, so six and nine delineate the boundaries of the land. Okay, seven and eight, okay, talk about, talk about the use of the produce. Okay, now, what we have to think about is, what is the meaning of this chiastic structure? Well, why does the Mishnah structure things in this way? And it seems that the structure of these four chapters is challenging us to think about uh, the connection between how we relate to the land and how we relate to the produce of the land, right? Okay, chapters six and nine are talking about the land, how we relate to the land. Chapters seven and eight are talking about what can I do with the produce? So there's some interplay here between how I relate to the land and how I relate to the produce of the land. And this, theme is actually uh, indicated already in the very first Mishnah of this section. Okay, lo ne'echal v'lo ne'evad. Lo ne'echal tells us how I relate to the produce. Lo ne'evad tells me how I relate to the land. Then I have kol shechzik and here 
I divide the two from one another. Ne'echal, that's how I relate to the produce. Velo ne'evad, but I relate to the land differently. And then I come to outside of the framework, ne'echal ne'evad. I have no special relationship either to, to the land or to its produce. Okay, but here already I'm, okay, I, I'm raising this question of what's the connection between how I relate to the land and how I relate to the produce. And that is the overarching question of this whole section, okay, as we can see in the chiastic structure. Okay, any questions or comments until now? Looks like there is a question uh, in the chat from uh, Sivan um, asking about biur, the meaning of the word biur. Yes. Okay. Okay. That, that that's what we're going to turn to now. Okay. Before we can really try to make any sense out of out of this structure, we need a little background, and I'm going to I'm going to present the background. Uh, in light of the, in light of the midrash halacha, okay, Mishnah, okay, uh, was compiled, you know, around the end of the second century, uh, CE, and it was compiled from all kinds of materials that had been uh, formulated, and much of it had been redacted in one form or another prior to the Mishnah, a lot of those materials uh, 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 found their way into other compilations that were compiled within a couple of generations after the Mishnah. Some of these compilations are called Midrashei Halacha, okay, Midra, Tanaitic Midrashim, okay, and uh, on the last four books of the Torah, we have various Midrashic compilations. Okay, the one Midrashic compilation that we have to the book of Ayikra is called the Sifra, sometimes referred to as Torah Kohanim. So we're going to look at how the Midrash uh, reads the Psukim and what, the, what laws the Midrash derives from the Psukim. And that will give us a basic introduction to the terms and, and ideas that we need in order to understand what, what, what the mission is discussing in these four chapters. Okay, so um, let's read together um, from the Sifra and Parshat Bahar. Etzviach kitzircha lo tiktsor, mikan samchu chachamim al hasvichim sheyuhu asurim bashvi'i. Okay, when the Torah says that the uh, produce that grows on its own, Safiya, is produce that grows on its own. Because I'm not allowed to plant during Shemitah, but produce that grows on its own, okay, the Torah says don't harvest. Now, we'll see in a bit that not harvesting doesn't mean I can't pick I can't pick the produce. I can't detach it from the ground and make use of it. Okay, what it means within the framework of the Torah is don't harvest it in the normal fashion. Okay, we'll see a basis for that in just another minute. Um, okay, so 
normally, uh, you know, today uh, a farmer will bring in a, uh, a combine and come through and harvest large swaths uh, of land at a time. In ancient times, you would take a scythe, okay, and, you know, and, and spend a day out in the field. And also, you would harvest a large quantity, okay, what you could, what one worker could harvest in a day, okay, will, will probably, you know, last the normal family for several weeks, if not months, okay, and the, 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 the owner of the field, okay, will have many people out in the field, if he's got a large field, but many people out in the field working on the harvest, and he'll harvest enough to sustain his household for the entire year, okay, and probably have a significant amount of it that he can take to market and, 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 and sell it to other people less fortunate than he, who don't have their own fields to harvest. That's the normal way of harvesting. That's what you're not allowed to do during, during the Shemitah. But we have here, we have a rabbinic injunction not to, not to utilize the Sfichim at all. The Sfichim okay, are annuals, not perennials. Okay, so that includes most kinds of, uh, okay, most kinds of, of, uh, of grains and vegetables okay, would be the annuals. And even if they grow on their own, you can't make use of them dur during Shemitah. The reason for that is, again, because of Ovrei Avera. Okay, if we have a chance to look at the opening mission of chapter nine, we'll see that when we, uh, uh, when we look at that mission. Okay, since there would be many people who violated Shemitah, what some of them would do is they would plant, and then uh, when, when, the plant, when, when everything would sprout, so they'd say, oh, Okay, gee, I was lucky this year. It all sprouted on its own. Okay, so since these are annuals, it's very hard to check whether the person uh, is on the up and up. Okay, so the Chachamim simply said, this is prohibited. That's why in Eretz Yisrael today, it's a much bigger problem to find vegetables that don't have a Shemitah issue involved with them than it is to find fruits. Because fruits don't, are generally perennials, okay? The tree doesn't regenerate every year, okay? And so, so there's no problem with fruit, but there is with, with vegetables, okay? The Midrash is reading the word nizirecha as something that has been bounded, something that has been guarded, okay? You shall not Harvest the grapes that have been guarded. But you may harvest grapes that have that that have been left free for anyone to take, and then every individual can take them, including the owner. But how may he take them? That's the third line. Don't harvest them in the normal fashion. Okay, don't gather them 
in the usual manner, which the continuation seems to indicate is more a matter of, of quantity than it is of quality. In other words, if I want to use a scythe, that's not a problem. But it probably wouldn't pay that much because the scythe is for, for large amounts. Okay, here I can just take a knife or a scissors and, 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 and it'll be good enough because I can only take a small amount. Okay, so, uh, so for example, I, I can't press my grapes in a grape press, okay, in a wine press, but I can take a, a kneading trough and press my grapes there. Because that's a much smaller framework. Okay, so that would not be a violation of Shemitah. Okay, or to put it, uh, to, to put it, uh, to, to, to put it a, a, a little bit differently, uh, when I harvest small quantities, so I'm like everybody else. Okay, I come, I take for my immediate domestic consumption and leave the rest out, out in the field for my neighbors to come and for animals to roam in and, and, to, and to help themselves. So I'm no worse than anybody else. I'm also no better than anybody else. So that's what Lotitzor and Lotitzor mean according to the Pshat. Vaita Shabbat Haaretz Lachem, the continuation of the Basuk is Lachem Leochla. Okay, so the Okay, the, the, the produce is for us to eat. So now, once again, you are not entitled to eat from those uh, fruits that were guarded. In other words, if I have shown this is mine, I'm keeping everybody else out. I'm building fences. I'm putting up guards. I'm not letting anybody else in then I'm not allowed to make use of them at all. But if I've opened my field to everyone, then I am entitled to make use of the produce. Lachem. Okay, Vaita Shabbat Lachem. So the uh, Midrash says, Lachem below Lachirim. Okay, this is for Jews, not for non-Jews. I can't use it for sacrifices. I can use it for eating, not for other things. In other words, my use of Shemitah produce is also limited. It's limited in quantity. It's also limited in terms of what I can do with it. I can't do with it whatever I like. Think back to the Mishnah's ruling, not to use it okay, as a bandage for a wound. Okay, says the Midrash, so perhaps from the Pasuk, it sounds like the only ones who can eat from Shemitah produce are the poor. How do I know that the rich can also eat from Shemitah produce? Okay, so it says for you as well as for your servants. So for you means for the wealthy landowner as well. Okay, so why does the Torah single out the Aniim? What gives them more rights? Because there's something called Bi'ur, which we will define in just a bit. And past the time called Bi'ur, only Aniim are entitled to eat, not Ashirim, according to Rabbi Yudah. Rabbi Yosei Omer, Echad Aniim, Echad Ashirim, 
and he doesn't really answer the question why the Torah singles out the Aniim. And finally, the Torah is comparing the domestic animal to the wild animal. Okay, as long as it is available to the beast of the field, so then you can bring some of it and give it to your domestic animals. But once it is no longer available to the beasts of the field, then you have to remove it from the animals in your household. This is the halacha that we call bi'ur. Bi'ur means as long as the produce is still growing and available in the field, okay? So since it's available to all, then whatever I have gathered into my house, and remember, we've seen earlier, I can only gather small amounts into my house. Whatever I've gathered into my house is legit. I can make use of it for my family, for my animals, but once it is no longer available in the fields, I have to air. I have to remove it from my house. I can't maintain it in my house. In other words, I am no more privileged than the beasts of the field. As long as they have access to it, what I have in my house is fair game for me and for my household. If they don't have access to it, I have to remove from my house whatever it is that I had that I'd gathered in earlier. That's the halacha that's called bi'ur. Okay, so now let's go back and, and, and look again at, uh, at what we've seen in these four chapters. Rabbi Wolfish, is this a good time to interrupt with a question uh, from the chat? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so Ruth is asking, um, but does not prohibiting eating of the, and uh, forgive me for not being able to pronounce that word correctly, I think it's adventitious growth negative, negatively impact the poor who rely on um, leket and pea? Um, yes, it, it will indeed impact on them. And that's why I think that the main theme of, uh, of Shemitah is not <clears throat> to support the poor. Okay, I don't think that's the main point of Shemitah. The, the, the main point of Shemitah is to renounce my control over the land, to acknowledge the fact that this land is not really fully mine. It really belongs to God, and therefore my rights in the land are equal to the rights of everybody else. So in that regard, there is, uh, it is a great equalizer, okay? In, it's a, in that sense, you know, it, it does have a social component, okay? I and other members of the society, we're all equal. We all approach this land uh, from, the, you know, from the same vantage point with the same, with the same rights and, and, uh, uh, and obligations. But in terms of support, very likely the poor will get less support than, than the, uh, uh, will get less support than the, than the rich, okay? And in fact, uh, yeah, maybe I can actually open this up and we'll, we'll, we'll see the Mishnah explicitly. 
Okay. Um, I won't just have to uh, say this outside. Let's find the Mishnah. Okay. Um, okay. There's a question that comes up in a Mishnah elsewhere, Masechet Yadaim. Okay. Which asks, Amonu Moav, that's Transjordan. Mahin Bashmi'it. What is their law during Shemitah? Rabbi Tarfon, Gazar Rabbi Tarfon Maserani, the Gazar Rabbi Lazar Ben Azar Yamaser Sheni. Okay, so now inside Eretz Israel, there are no laws of Chumotu Masro during Shemitah because the produce is all hefker. Okay, it's all hefker, it's all ownerless, and therefore there are no Chumotu Masro. But in Transjordan, where we don't have the full fledged laws of Shemitah, so they do have Trumotu Masrot. And the question is, okay, every first, second, fourth, and fifth year of a Shemitah cycle, okay, uh, 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 the second Maaser, the second tithe is Maser Sheni, which you bring up and to Yerushalayim and eat it in sanctity. But every third and sixth year, you have Maser Ani, which is used to support the poor. So the question is, Amon and Moav will have, uh, on the one hand, they are, they are an adjoining territory to Eretz Israel, So they have Trumotu Masrot, rabbinically. Okay? And they will have them even during a Shemitah year because they don't have the laws of Shemitah. So now, which, which Maser will they have? Maser Ani or Maser Sheni? Okay? And so... Um, okay, um, okay, so the Mishnah uh, says, if we look here, okay, um, you can all see the, uh, uh, here it is. okay, uh, the second line on, on your screen right now, okay, uh, it says, Shehem Krovim, these lands are close to Israel, we will make them into Maaser Ani and not Maaser Sheni. Why? In order to support the poor of Israel during the Shemitah year. Okay, in other words, since we are talking about lands that are close there to Israel, the poor who during the Shemitah year are actually. Uh, getting less produce than they normally get in a normal year, because as someone mentioned, they don't get leket shichau peah, okay, which they would get in a normal year. Okay, so um, okay, so uh, uh, what they can do is they can cross the Jordan River and find maaser ani, okay, uh, which can support them during the shemitah. So this mission, I think, indicates. Quite uh, 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 quite clearly that um, okay um, let's go back to indicates qu quite clearly that uh, that during the Shemitah year uh, the poor are actually not supported fully for what there is in Eretz Israel, but. Uh, again, I think the main idea of the Shemitah year is not to support the poor, but to equalize, okay? To relinquish control and at the same time to make a social statement uh, about, uh, about equality. 
Okay, now, um, now we're in a position to understand the terms that we had uh, in, in these four chapters, chapters six, seven, eight, and nine. Okay, so first let's talk about Yeshlo Shvi'it Uledamav Shvi'it, Yeshlo Bi'ur Uledamav Bi'ur. Okay, so uh, anything that is designed for consumption, that means Machal Adam or Machal Bema or use as dye, okay, if it is something that is annual and not perennial, so it will uh, disappear from the field at a certain point, okay, it will not last. So then, in addition to the laws of Shvi'it, the laws of Shvi'it have to do with how I'm allowed to consume it. Those laws will be detailed in chapter eight. We'll see this in a couple of minutes. Okay, so it has the laws of Shvi'it. It's uh, per purchase money will also have the laws of Shvi'it. Notice you have to use the money for the same purpose for which you could use the produce. But also, Yeshlo Bi'ur, Ledamav Bi'ur. Beyond the date when it disappears from the field, you will have to remove it from your house. And if money was used to purchase Shemitah produce, that money would have to be removed from your house. But if it's the sort of thing that lasts throughout the year, it doesn't disappear from the field. So then it has the laws of Shemitah produce, does not have the laws of Bi'ur. Okay, so now we, we've understood those terms in chapter seven. We've all, we can also understand chapter eight. Okay, things that are designed for consumption, for human consumption, you can't use them uh, for other purposes. They can be used only for consumption. But if it's not, if it's something that could be consumed that, that, that's not designated specifically for human consumption, can be consumed by animals, then you have more flexibility into how you can use it. This is the law that we normally refer to as Kdushachvit. Okay, since the, the produce has sanctity, the sanctity means you can use it for some purposes and not for others. So if it's designed for human consumption, you must limit it to human consumption. Okay, if it's for animal consumption, then that gives you a lot more a lot more leeway, <clears throat> okay? And um, okay, and now we can understand the opening of chapter nine. Shalosh haratzot levi'ur, okay? Yudah ve'ver ayadein v'galil. Now, why are there three regions for bi'ur? Lama amru shalosh haratzot? Shiwochlin mikol achat v'achat ha'chichleha acharon shabbat. Because when I say it's available in the field, doesn't mean it's available in my personal field. It's, av it's available in the field in my region. So we divide the land into three regions. Okay, and as long as within that region, it's available in the fields, even if not in my field or my neighbor's field. But if you go over to a neighboring community, you'll find that it's available in those fields. As long as we're all within one region, Judah, Transjordan, or the Galilee, 
So then Biur doesn't, doesn't yet go into effect. And Biur is defined separately for each of these three regions. Okay? So now, now we've understood these, these terms. Now to get a bit more of a sense of this chiastic structure, let's take a closer look at the opening of chapter six. What does it mean, We said means that's exactly what you do. You eat the produce. So areas that have Shemitah laws, you do eat the produce. So what does the Mishnah mean when it says you don't eat? So the Mefarshim suggests three possible answers. Okay, one answer is by uh, uh, an early Mishnah commentator called Re Ben Malkit Sedek from Italy, okay, who explains Nechal uh, means So when we say that there's a region, okay, which has Shemitah laws and therefore the produce can't be eaten, it means it can't be eaten beyond the cutoff date of Biur. Rambam says it means asur lechol hasfichim atzomchim botahaaretz. Okay, when you say you can't eat the produce, lo neechal, you can't eat the produce means you can't eat the sfichim produce. Okay, anything that comes from a perennial plant, let's say from a tree, you can eat. eat. But when it says lo nechal, it means sfichim produce can't be eaten. Again, because of the rabbinic injunction. And Bartanura suggests two explanations. Explanation he prefers is the first one, but beforehand he suggests another explanation. asur gidulim. Okay, that what you can't eat is produce from land that has been worked. When the land has been worked, then the produce becomes prohibited. And now, what, there's a common theme to all these three interpretations, and that is that when the Mishnah says lo ne'echal, what determines lo ne'echal is how I'm supposed to relate to the land. What I can do with the produce depends on how I relate to the land. Let's see how that plays out. Let's start off with the third interpretation, the Bartanura. The Bartanura says, okay, only produce from land that hasn't been worked is allowed. So when we say, lo ne'echal v'lo ne'evad, lo ne'evad means you can't work the land. And lo ne'echal means, and if you did work the land, you can get no benefit from it because you're not allowed to enjoy the produce. Rambam makes the connection between land and produce a little more tenuous because he says it's a problem of Sfichim. But why is Sfichim prohibited during Shemitah? Because of the concern that, because of the concern that, that, that people who have, uh, 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 because of the concern that, that, that people might have violated Shemitah and planted things and pretended they grew on their own. So 
what the Rambam is saying, the Rambam is also connecting what you do with the produce with what you're allowed to do with the land. Produce suspected of coming from worked land is prohibited. So the Bartanor is talking about produce from land that has actually been worked. Rambam is talking about produce that comes from land that we suspect might have been worked. And Reben Malkit Sedek says, produce may be consumed normally as long as it is freely available in the land. He says it's to eat it after the biur. In areas that are prohibited, lo ne'echal, it means once it's not available in the land, you can't get benefit from it in the house either. So all three of them, in, a fa in fact, are telling us that what happens with the produce reflects the way you're supposed to relate to the land. And I think that gives us the key to understanding this chiastic structure of the four chapters. Okay, the framing uh, part of the chapters tells us how to relate to the land. The land of Israel has delineated boundaries. Within the land of Israel, I have delineated regions. Okay, those regions define the settlement, the society that is living in the land. Okay, so these basically tell us how I relate to the land. Okay, the laws of Shemitah give me a perspective on the land. What are the boundaries of the land? What are the regions of the land? What are the social divisions, okay? The part of the society that lives in this region or that region. This gives me the definition of the land. And that in turn governs what appears in the two middle chapters. What I am entitled to do with the produce, okay? Because uh, the produce, okay, when I, Look at the produce, and I think this is what is unique about the Shemitah year. During a normal year, once I gather, okay, the land is instrumental. Okay, I have a utilitarian way of, of viewing the land and approaching it. The land is designed for enabling me to produce from the land what I want and what I need, and I gather it however I like and I dispose of it however I like. I can gather large quantities, I can market some of them, I can okay, uh, make use of those things that I have in my house for whatever needs I might need to meet, okay? So the land is, uh, is looked at from a utilitarian perspective, okay, and, uh, okay, and, the produce is really the goal. I'm using the land in order to obtain the produce. During the Shemitah year, what I think we're doing is inverting that way of looking at it. The produce is a reflection of the land. Because I am supposed to abandon the land, I'm supposed to relinquish my control of the land, say, this is not my land. I can't work it. I can't plant, I can't plant it. I can't restrict people from going through my land. Okay, I have to leave things open and let people 
wander through my land. So I'm relating to this land, not in a utilitarian fashion, but in a sense, I'm sort of anthropomorphizing the land. I'm, per, I'm, I'm personifying the land. Remember how the Torah presents Shemitah, Vishavtaha Aretz, the land shall rest. Okay, so when I'm letting the land rest, I'm treating the land, okay, as an entity with which I have a relationship. Okay, in, in, in a way, you know, to uh, view it in Buberian terms, I have it not an I-it relationship to the land, but an I-thou relationship to the land. Okay, the land is in and, in and of itself something uh, to, uh, uh, to which I have a relationship. And part of that relationship is, this is the land given me by God. And so it's very dear to me. And it's a land that connects me to God. That makes it all the dearer to me. So because I have this relationship to the land, the produce, my relationship to the produce reflects my relationship to the land. I can't do whatever I want to with the produce. But I, whenever I want to dispose of the produce, first thing you have to do is say, okay, what land did this come from? Did this come from land that was worked? Did, is, is it available now in the land? Is it readily available throughout the land? Be, I have to answer those questions before I can make any use uh, of that produce because more it's not the land serving a utilitarian purpose of providing me the, with the produce. It's the produce reflecting a relationship to the land. And so I treat the produce with respect. I treat it as sacred in so far as it reflects the land, which I relate to as a sacred land. Okay, so I think that that that, help, that that will give us an understanding of the chiastic structure of these chapters. Okay, one final point with which I want to conclude, and that comes back to the cloud Gadol point. Okay, there's one other place in the Mishnah that has cloud Gadol, and that is not altogether surprisingly Masechet Shabbat. Klal Gadol Amru Shabbat, and the Klal Gadol has to do with when I perform, when I violate Shabbat, okay? I violate several Shabbatot and several Mlachot on every Shabbat. Is that all one big, long transgression? The Shabbat is one entity? Or do I say I have violated every single Shabbat day? I violated the day? Or do I say every act, forbidden activity is another violation? Okay, so each activity is, is defined. That's the cloud gadol that opens Masechet Shabbat. Now, something very interesting to note that Shvi'it and Shabbat both have cloud gadol is interesting. We already saw in the first chapter, as we saw in the, in the Psukim, the Torah, that Shabbat and Shvi'it have a very close relationship. Shvi'it is called a Shabbat Lashem. But note which chapter it, uh, it says Klal Gadol in Shabbat, chapter seven. And in what chapter does it say Klal Gadol in Shvi'it? Chapter seven, also chapter eight, but first of all in chapter seven. 
Okay, and I think the Mishnah is making a very clear statement by bringing us this interrelationship between Shabbat and Shemitah. Okay, the number seven, which is so central, both the Shabbat and Shemitah, is the chapter in which the Klal Gadol, in which the Klal Gadol appears. Okay, now a uh, point with which we'll conclude is that there's a there are another few places uh, in in the Mishnah, two of them in Masechtot that are very close to Shvi'it, that talk not about a Klal Gadol, but Klal Amru, Klal Amru B'Masrot and Klal Amru B'Pe'at. And there's a sugyah, it appears both in the Yerushalmi and the Bavli in Masechet Shabbat, that relates all of these klalim. Okay, we, I won't take the time to read through it, but I'll just tell you the idea. What the, what the sugya, both in the Bavli and in, and in the Yerushalmi, uh, 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 tells us is that the klal of Shabbat is the greatest of the klalim, because on Shabbat, all work is prohibited, both agricultural work and work that is not agricultural. All kinds of labor are prohibited on Shabbat. During Shemitah, only agricultural labor, uh, only agricultural labor is, is, uh, uh, is permitted. Okay, now uh, in, in, in Shemitah, Okay, the klal of Shemitah is a klal gadol vis-a-vis the klal of Masrot, because the klal of Shemitah applies both to human food and to animal food. Maaser applies only to human food, polshehu ochel. And the klal of Maaser is greater than the klal of Pe'ah, okay, because Maaser applies to anything that is food and is preserved, guarded, okay, a person maintains ownership over it and it grows from the ground. Whereas pe'ah is, has those three conditions, but adds another two restrictive conditions that it's all harvested together because you can't have the poor hanging around all year to wait. The poor gather only when there's a harvest season and machnisol l'kiyum, okay, which reminds us again of Shemitah, you know, mitkayem ba'aret, same term, kiyum and mitkayem, okay, and it's something that lasts, okay, and the poor are entitled to gather food that will last them for a period of time, not, not food that needs to be consumed right away, okay, and what effectively the Talmud is telling us is that when we look at all of these klalim together, they're telling you a story. The story is, how does God convey to us the idea that our property is not really ours? That the property, that the land that he has given us doesn't really fully belong to us. He, he entitles us to enjoy it, but he has strings attached where he says, you know what? I'm the real owner, I'm the real boss here, and you have to acknowledge my ultimate uh, sovereignty over this land, okay? And the story is told, moving up the ladder from, uh, from Pe'ah, that has the, that's restricted 
to only certain kinds of humanly uh, 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 produce designed for human consumption, moving up the ladder to ma'asrot, the tithing, that applies to all kinds of produce that are for human consumption. Then Shemitah extends that even beyond to animal food. Because in Shemitah, I also have to care for the animals, not only for the human beings in the society. And from there, moving on up to Shabbat, okay, which is God's ultimate control, where he says, you have to abandon any kind of work, not only agricultural work in the fields, you have to recognize that the whole world belongs to me. And therefore, you have to rest on that day. I will close with that point for this evening. Thank you all for your attention. Rabbi Walfish? Yes. Oh yeah, it looks like we have a question from Ruth. So, yes. and you could say that it has not escaped our notice that the malacha of Shabbat is an anagram for the ma'achal of all the other. Oh, very nice. <laughs> okay, very, very nice. Okay, that, that okay, did escape my attention, but it's a nice thought. Okay. Thank you so much, um, Rabbi Wolfish. If there's no more questions, I don't think there are additional questions. So um, thank you for this interesting session. Uh, I'm looking forward to next week. We have the fourth and final uh, session next week of this uh, class. Uh, thank you also to everyone who joined us today, uh, not only here on Zoom, but also on Facebook <coughs> and on uh, Drisha Live. Uh, we'll uh, go live again tomorrow with a class at 8 p.m., uh, the Covenantal Commandment, the sabbatical year in the Bible with Rabbi Silber. Uh, you can always find out uh, information about classes yeah. and uh, uh, registration links on our website, www.drisha.org classes. And you can uh, watch uh, classes live and the recordings of the classes at uh, www.drisha.org slash live. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn. Can I ask Rabbi Wolfish. And one question? Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, yes. Was there a difference between what Rabbi Wolfish had on the screen and the source sheets that were distributed? Yes. I couldn't follow half the time, the, not half the time, some of the time I couldn't see the the text so it's just it's not me that's all i want to refer yes to. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i i i did i did modify the uh the sheet somewhat could we get the sheet she used that would be great uh sure okay perfect so rabbi wolfish i'll if you send i'll send them out and uh perfect mm -hmm. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you Michael, for uh, pointing that out. Okay, so thank you so much, everyone. And we really look yeah. forward to uh, seeing you at one of our upcoming classes here at Risha, hopefully tomorrow. And later. Okay, thank you.